with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon and Jeff at the end of the men's one day series in India I think it's fairly clear that Australia are going to win the World Cup oh it's a fait accompli why bother playing it just uh, just give it to them now make it chalk it up make it six uh, coming back from from two sets to love down a la Paddy Rafter uh, just the way the great man would have wanted it was uh, yeah, it was uh, it was reminiscent of uh, like a Davis Cup rubber early to late nineties. Actually, Pat Rafter was never any good in the Davis Cup. It was more a Mark Philippoussis or Leighton Hewitt move to come back from two sets to love down to, to triumph for his nation. Um, and that's what, exactly what Aaron Finch orchestrated. He was good at captaining the Davis Cup, wasn't he? Like the bit where he yeah. didn't play. He was good at not playing. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I like how they call it, yeah, they call it the captain, don't they? There's the captain and the coach of the Davis Cup yep. side, none of whom, pl- neither of whom play. No. Um, uh, Captain's anyway, just moral support, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, the coach is just what they drive to, they drive to the, the court team. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a great so, line. Woo-hoo! Yes, uh, two sets to love, as you say, and, and they got the job done. And it wasn't as though they, they won through India being shit or, or you know, rock, mm. rolling them for 120 or whatever it was. So three... Fairly substantial uh, performances uh, with, I thought the ball was almost more impressive than the bat in Ranchi, being able to stay relaxed at the Rancho Relaxo um, <laughs> when Coley made 100 and looks like he was going to chase down 313. Uh, then the extraordinary chase uh, that they put on in Mahali, a ground that's um, not always been the, the most helpful to Australian sides over the years. And then Usmania was back again in the in the fifth and final one day. Uh, it was like watching him bat in 2015-16 when he was the best player in the planet for a few months there. And uh, gee whiz, he was, he was absolutely outstanding and, and now has made a compelling case for his retention for the World Cup, which is probably not something that we were going to say a couple of months ago when we felt as though he was just kind of a placeholder until Warner and Smith returned. But now it's going to be hard to leave him out. Indeed, they can't leave him out. There's so much to go through, and we've also got the Australian Women's Series against New Zealand that we want to go through in some detail as well yep. uh, a bit later, but I, I guess we'll do the Men's Series while it's fresh. The, the thing with Kouage is I was amazed when he even made the team in January. It seemed, you know, he, he'd come off a pretty d- dog ordinary sort of test summer, hadn't looked himself since that amazing test innings in Dubai, that century against Pakistan back in October, and he, he just hadn't looked himself I guess he had that knee injury that he was trying to recover from but even the fact he made the one day side was weird and then his the way he played didn't we his... argue against it I feel, I feel like on our yeah. podcast we might have I think we said he should play the last four shield games didn't we and I, I feel as though at the time that was quite a rational position given that he hadn't had much of a summer yeah. uh, it looks like it was a one day team that was not going to be much of a threat at the World Cup and, and he should just focus on playing against the Dukes ball in the shield and getting himself ready for the Ashes yeah well that was definitely what I thought at the time because it, really the question was why do you need Kawaja in that one day side and he seemed to back that up in Australia in January because he, he didn't get the pace of the game. He wasn't sort of able to get things moving. Um, he, he looked bogged down when he was facing India's bowlers in Australia. But in between now and then, something's clicked and he's got a bit more clarity in his role. I guess also that he's opening the batting um, in India as opposed to first drop when he was playing in Australia. So that may have just helped his clarity of purpose a bit to you know to know that he's got all of the time in the innings to to go on but to make those two centuries that he made and to set up you know particularly that massive score that they got in Mahali with astonishing 
His record as an opener far outstrips that of number three, and that kind of means something in one-day cricket because coming in that one or two, you know that you're batting with the field up, and that seems to suit him. It certainly did in that fifth one-day. I think he struck six boundaries in the power play, you know, when he was in that kind of touch. And, you know, this is all assuming he, he, he continues to be in this sort of form in the middle of the year in England. But if he were to be, that I think keeping him at number one or number two is logical and, and seeing if there is a way of either shuffling uh, Warner down the list, which you probably wouldn't want to do either, or whether Finch has to accommodate the return of Warner. You wouldn't have thought that was the case last year when Finch was the inform white ball player in the world, certainly in T20 cricket. But I sort of see it as with Finch, they clearly love this guy and they want him to captain this team. There's there's a huge degree of cohesion at the moment. You could see it in the way they celebrated their victory a couple of days ago uh, that they uh, that this meant an awful lot to them. So it sounds a little bit English to pick your captain first and pick the team around them. But I, I mean, even if Finch wasn't in pristine Nick coming into the, the World Cup, I think you have to pick him on the basis that he's a leader that they're coalescing around at the moment. And, and maybe he can find a role for himself down the list in the middle order or indeed at number three now that Sean Marsh seems to be pushed out, which is a, a pretty good problem to have considering uh, Sean Marsh only, I guess, two months ago was the most... Uh, he, he, was the, he was the most dependable white ball batsman Australia had. Yeah, but here's the weird position that this Australian one-day team now finds itself in. Too many options, basically. Embarrassment of riches. They've got Smith and Warner to come back, but is there actually a place for them in the side? I'm, I... I tend to think that there isn't at the moment because if you look at it rationally, you've got Peter Hanscom does the Steve Smith job and he's been doing it well. Would you rather have him doing it uh, in good recent form or a guy who hasn't played for a year coming back in and trying to do it? There are two openers who are flying. Uh, you know, I mean, Finch made the 90-odd, which which helped. He's, you know, obviously hasn't been in good nick before that, and he's he's battling a bit. But he's got the, the captaincy, as you say, which means that there really isn't anyone else available to captain the side. You know, who else is going to do no. that job if they leave Finch out? Because the only candidates are maybe Maxwell, who the selectors are, are against. Marsh, who's never led a side mm. at any level, I don't think, in his entire career <laughs> and has never said a word on the cricket field to his teammates or the opposition. Um or maybe one of the bowlers, you throw someone like <clears throat> Pat Cummins into it in the deep end just before a World Cup. It's not really fair because captaining one-day cricket is probably harder than captaining test cricket. You've got more to keep hold of and, and more to keep track of with your bowling changes and your field placements and all the rest of it. So Finch has to play because he's the captain. Kawaj is flying as an opener. Uh, you you have you could say you could push Kawaja down to three, but you've got Sean Marsh who should be at three because... He made a, he made a hundred against South Africa in November. He made a hundred against India in January, and he made two hundreds in England less than a year ago. So surely he's got a claim there. You've got Hanscom who's locked himself in at four, and then you start to need to bring in your all rounders and your power hitters down at five, six, seven. So where is there actually a spot for either Smith or Warner to come back? Yeah, well, twenty two one day hundreds between them, uh, and they did play in the twenty fifteen win, which isn't for nothing. Experience and all the rest. I think that will, I think they will come back. I think like. I understand your, your sort of uh, your your intellectual argument that you're that you're mounting there that, that they're going to have to find their way back in and there's no spot available therefore they miss out but on the assumption that they were to play they might have to find some efficiencies where I mean Hanscom could take the gloves which could help in, I mean that'd be very stiff on Alex Carey who I thought batted really well with uh, with Turner at the end of that chase in where were we Mahali but. Um, all the same, and he did keep well too. It was an excellent stumping he executed last night from the bowling of Adam Zampa. And well, two, two of, in and over. Two, yeah, and, and, and spin will be important, but Hanscom's no jobber behind the stumps. 
with the gloves on either. So I see that being one way they find a way through this. Yeah, I think um, in England, yeah. though, that's a big uh, cross against that idea because keeping in England is, uh, I guess, almost harder than anywhere. Keeping in one day as in India is, is a much different thing to keeping in tests in India because you're not really on the sort of ragging, turning tracks. But keeping in England where the ball does weird things and does loop-de-loops after it passes the batsman and um, sort of dips up and down to be able to handle that sort of wobbling, swerving ball and, and not let through 40 buys in an innings is is massively important. And also, you know, to be able, when there's so much, when there is swing around, to be able to follow the deflections and take those catches. And also there's a question of what does that do to Hanscom's batting? You know, if he's his ideal spot seems to be number four where he can rotate through the middle, he can attack spinners, he can be really proactive at, at trying to score a runner ball just in singles, basically, um, and being really busy and hustling up and down the pitch and running twos. And, you know, that's his sort of engine room role. Can he do that if he's been squatting behind the stumps for 50 overs and then has to come out and do the same gig? Yeah, what certainly is in Hanscom's favour is that we hear a lot about the way he plays spin. That, that's been the reason he's been backed in repeatedly uh, by the Australian selectors in, in subcontinental conditions in the test side and again here in India. It, but it certainly shows, doesn't it? He's so happy to come down the track. He's got that ability to get to the pitch of the ball. And, and when he doesn't, to, to check his stroke and, and play defensively and, and not get stumped, um, not a lot of players can do that. And it's fair to expect that this World Cup will be influenced by spin heavily. So I see Hanscom going. Take your point. It's not going to be perfect if he keeps. Uh, you, you want to have a specialist there, but if there is a view that there is uh, too many dicks on the dance floor, then they're going to have to find a way to um, <laughs> to fit someone else in. Uh, then, then that might be one way of doing it. Finch shuffling down the three. You're right again. Like Marsh being pushed out would be would be cruel. But I mean, Ashton Turner, he, he's probably the one who's complicated matters here because Turner mm. was picked ahead of Sean Marsh. Well. Depends how you interpret it, but for that final one-day international, Turner had to play. Marsh was left out. Stoinis came back into the side. Um, they like Turner, and, and understandably so. Uh, the way he batted in that fourth one-day international, the 84 or 43 balls, I think it was. I mean, I was OBOing it at the time for the Guardian, and I mean, I think I said at the time something to the effect of, if it wasn't in the middle of the night, and it wasn't in a game that not many people were watching, this mm. would be held up next to the Michael Bevan innings of the 1st of January 1996. Such was the unexpected expected nature of it it was after Maxwell had fallen that he had to put the foot down you just took it as assumed that Australia were going to roll over at that point Aaron Finch uh, observed this afterwards that um, at every point Australia looks like they could roll over that they found a way to um, they found a way to get themselves back into the game the same could be said for the way that Jai Richardson and Pat Cummins batted together uh, in the fifth one day but in the fourth one where Turner exploded I mean that was some of the most clean hitting you'll ever see but also some of the most resourceful batting when he um, scooped Boomerah I mean that was outrageous it pitched a foot and a half outside the off stump and he managed to almost strike it from off the pitch over the top of the keeper into the into the sight screen I think it was he's um He's going to be a very hard player to leave out. And of course, I think, despite the fact that I'm sure there'll be moves to drop Maxwell, um, Maxwell and Stoinis surely should both be in that side for, for sort of obvious reasons in that they, they bring, you know, more than the sum of their parts players, certainly in the case of Maxwell being able to bowl and what he offers in the field and leadership and experience and so on. I, I see a world where that, that could be the five, six, seven, Maxwell, Stoinis and Turner or in any order. Uh, and that, that will be compelling. If, if Hanscom's at four and keeping. That's right. So, 
that's kind of my point. If Hanscom's in the in, in, keeping at four, which we have seen in one-day cricket, it's not as though um, keepers haven't occupied the top four positions. I mean, Adam Gilchrist is the outlier in many respects, but he did so for about 10 years for Australia in, in one-day cricket. And Quinton de Kock, of course, does it at the moment for South Africa. So I don't think it's outside the realms of possibility that they can find a way to include them all. But that still has one too many players, because if you go through it and you have Warner and... Kawaja opening and, and Finch at number three and, and Hanscom at four and, and the aforementioned uh, trio of Turner, Stoinis and Maxwell at five, six and seven. Where's Steve Smith in all of that? Bad luck, Steve See you later. But yeah, yeah, so I mean, whether they could bat six, seven and eight, which I mean, that, that, that limits your bowling. So I can't believe we're having this conversation, by the way. I mean, you think about how bad Australia has been at one day cricket. They, yeah. Until last week, they'd lost 20 of 21 one day as away from home. Their last six series in one day cricket, stretching back to 2016 or whatever it is. I mean, yeah, this was inconceivable that they were going to go and run like this. It, when they were 2-0 right, okay. down, they'd lost 22 out of 26. Which is, right. which is, you know, in, in, and that's including at home. So that, it's a pretty astonishingly bad record. But, you know, mm. the way things have turned around. And I guess, you know, things could turn around the other way again by the end of the Pakistan tour. Or maybe they go to Dubai, everyone has a dog of a trip, no one makes a run. Um, <laughs> and the next thing you know, it's, you know, welcome back uh, the... Uh, the prodigal sons with open arms and slaughter the fatted calves and all the rest of it. But to get onto a bit of what you were talking about, uh, the thing with Turner, the scoop shot over the keeper. I've got to say, he he tried and failed that shot before he pulled it off. So he I think I think the fact he went after it was almost just on principle that he was like, I have to get one <laughs> because I looked stupid when I when I muffed it the first time and got hit in the body. Um, so he was determined to go. So even though Boomer bowled about three meters outside off, and and Turner was he was actually fielding at um, silly mid off to himself when he hit the ball, <laughs> um, but he had mm. to do it. He had to go after that ball just to just to prove that he could play that shot but you know it was it was one of the more exciting things I think more than a Bevan innings it was more like the um the James Faulkner against England in early 2014 just after they'd been whitewashed and that England one day side with Alistair Cook and Ian Bell opening the batting was being (laughs) absolutely pulverized time and time again and there was this moment where they thought oh we might get our first win on tour you know Australia needs 80 or 40 balls with uh, 10 overs left or whatever it was and Faulkner came out and went hello boys and just baseballed everything into the crowd and they um, managed to get home by a wicket so I take your point about there was a similar equation at play but it just looks like Turner is a serious batsman whereas Faulkner had the ability to as you say pongo them out of the out of the ground and you know the cross bat shots and all the rest of it the on drive that Ashton Turner played yesterday to get off the mark in the fifth one day that bisected um, mid wicket and mid on Mm. uh, that was absolute class yeah so I mean he's a guy who they've been investing in for years he played famously really or infamously that I guess that that uh, that game for Australia A back in 2013 from nowhere when he was dragged into the squad Um, he's going to the IPL which I think is important he's going to the IPL before the World Cup so he'll Mm. get a chance on the big stage um, you know, several times. I know he probably won't play the whole season because if he does get picked for the World Cup squad, he'll have to attend uh, the pre-season camp and so forth. But he'll play, you know, half a dozen IPL games um, with a lot of focus on him after what happened on Sunday. So, uh, I, look, I'd be surprised if he wasn't a first choice on the back of that. It's uh, it's such a compelling um, a compelling innings to to and and he's, he's red hot. I mean, he got out yesterday for twenty odd off twelve balls, but um, but I mean, until that point, he looked he looked fluent once again. So I. I see a world where those three, Stoinis, Maxwell, Turner, have to play, uh, and as do Warner, Hanscom and Kawaja, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you run out of spots. 
Um, I mean, I suppose in some ways it makes it easy as to who your squad will be. But the final eleven, um, mm. yeah, it, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an astonishingly good problem for Australia to have after such a terrible three years. So what I'll say about that, about that trio, you know, if you accept that Turner's a bit of a floater and he might come in, he could play seven. He could be a, you know, really useful, damaging prospect to come in and sort of Lance Klusner at at seven with you know six overs mm. to go because he does that for the Scorchers and has done for a while and he's such a damaging hitter in a really short space of time. That's what Stoinis has been struggling with massively in that that India series. He just it was like a broken down car trying to do a roll start every time Stoinis was batting, could not get going. And he likes to take his time a bit, but then they keep trying to use him as this hitter down the order, but then they also threw him up to first drop at one point and he was playing defensively at, at number three. It looks like he doesn't really know what his role is uh, and finds himself unable to rotate the strike and unable to get going and play his big shots. So he sort of ends up being, you know, 18 off 30 balls or something like that, sucks the life out of the innings a bit and, and can't necessarily catch it up. Um, so Turner's got that advantage over him, but Stoinis yep. has got the bowling, and they need his bowling because to have that extra seam bowler somewhere in your top six is invaluable. Maxwell's got the especially bowling. if you're playing, especially if you're playing two spinners, and I think they will play two spinners in mm. England. So that makes Stoinis's work with the ball. I mean, that that sort of doubles down while you need him in the team. It, it's yeah. Uh, or your only other option is to treat Maxwell as your second spinner because he bowled pretty well in this one-day series and was important what he and Stoinis offer in the field. And I think, you know, people can get into Maxwell and say he didn't make enough runs and, you know, cite things like how many half-centuries he's made. He made 47 off 31 in that third game when it was do or die. They had to win that third match to stay in the series. And there was that big opening partnership between Finch and Kawaja. Maxwell came in at first drop, floating, and... You know, and the way Australia's been going in the past, they could easily have, have collapsed at that point. They could easily have had the big opening stand and then subsided. He came in at number three and put the foot down and said, no way we're going to let up this momentum, 47 off 31, three fours, three sixes, and that pushed them up to a 300-plus total, and that meant that India couldn't chase it, even though they looked like they were going to when Coley made his 100, India were flying. But at that Maxwell innings had just put the uh, – put the total beyond what India could do. So they ended up at 280, you know, 20-odd runs short, and that innings was vital. So it doesn't necessarily come up on the stats column as a milestone, but it's a match-winning knock nonetheless. Yeah, I felt the same way about the Mahali innings. He made 25 or 23 or something like that, but it was in at a strike rate of 200. He got out reverse sweeping. But, I mean, the fact that he would have been out there for six or seven overs when Australia were going at 10 or 11 or 12 and over when they really needed to. Um, so, yeah, it's hard to kind of... You always appreciate the, the value. It's a little bit like with T Twenty cricket. They say that, like you, you the, the stats men and, and, mm. and stats women, as it were, can um, unpick what each contribution is made in in 120 deliveries of an innings, and they yeah. can weight it accordingly. What Maxwell often does won't show up in the 50s column or the hundreds column. It, it's when he does it and what he does at that stage of the game relative to what other players will be able to achieve. So, I mean, with all that said, though, I wouldn't be at all surprised if they drop him. I mean, based on what we know, it would it wouldn't completely. I mean, they they did drop him from the one day side last year when they were terrible. So I wouldn't be if he didn't go so well in the UAE. He'll be the first bloke off the boat. I mean, I just don't see any other scenario. It's where he'll be the he'll be easy collateral damage if they don't do too well in the UAE. So I yeah. think he's still going to have to make runs there. Well, I think everyone has to make runs there, and that's the thing I reckon with those. You know, the two big names waiting to come back in and the selectors want to pick them and Justin Langer wants them there. It's it's almost like if anybody has a couple of bad games in the UAE, that will be the excuse. It won't be a good enough reason to leave them out, but it'll be an excuse to push them out. Um, a bit like with 
you know, with Sean Marsh, he made three low scores in this series. But as I said, four hundreds in in about what eight games before that. Yeah. So that's not someone who's playing poorly. That's not someone you can easily make three poor scores in a row in one day cricket. It's very very easy to do. It doesn't mean you're playing badly. So even the fact that he was sort of you know shuffled out of the team for that fifth game, it might have been a thing on team balance, but it didn't give him the opportunity to then make a score and sort of justify his spot, So whereas other people had done. So that little streak of bad luck might just be used as a bit of an excuse to nudge someone out. Um, and as you say, in this kind of form of cricket, you've, you, you can make a, a match winning 15 or you can make a match losing 60, depending on how you go about it, the, the speed you score at um, and what the match situation is at the time. Especially so in this World Cup, which will be more like 2020 cricket than ever before. So it's going to be fascinating. I can't wait for the tournament. I, I'm, I'm, it's going to be riveting cricket. And, and if Australia are competitive, you know, two months ago, Australia, you could make the case they were the eighth or seventh or eighth best one day side in the world. If they can, um, you know, be, be threatening and be, be, a, the, be a, the sort of side that on their day could beat anyone, uh, that does add a, a, a fascinating element, especially given the off field stuff with Smith and Warner and, and then coming back onto the park for the first time for Australia, probably in a World Cup game, notwithstanding the fact that they'll probably play the warm up games um, against New Zealand. But the, the first games that really matter, um, you know, that are sanctioned as one day internationals will be uh, the World Cup opener. So. Well, um, with all that in mind, it, it, it does. It, it's, a, it's a fairly tasty scenario. Here's the argument I would make in terms of squad, which I'm I'm writing a piece for the ABC around this subject and, and sort of what you know what Smith and Warner need to do when they come back and, and so on. But I'd make the argument that you don't necessarily need Smith in that one day team, um, and it might not be the best thing for him or the team. He's I think he's a good one day player. I don't think he's ever been a great one day player. I think he had a great probably a year, maybe two years, around um, 20, sort of 14, 15, 16, when he really flourished in all formats for a little while. He's got a good record. He doesn't have an outstanding record. He's got a very good record, but he's not a, a sort of an all-time um, great in the way that I think David Warner probably is in that sort of format. Warner's almost so good that you have to play him. Smith, you have other people who can do that job. Marsh can do the job he does. Hanscom can do the job he does. And if Smith's not in that team, he could be in the Australia A squad playing first-class cricket, playing against a Duke's ball in England as much as possible to get ready for the Ashes because where they do need Steve Smith is for the Ashes. They can't win the Ashes, basically, if he's not up and firing. So if you don't need him in the World Cup squad, if you don't absolutely need him, he'd be nice to have, but he's not essential. And he could always be called up as cover or, or to come into the team if he was really needed, if there were injuries. But I think if that if the sort of best 11 or 12 that they've got now he's not necessarily in it he could be playing first class cricket instead and come into the ashes with momentum behind him in long form cricket and it might be a much more valuable way to go with the bowlers cummins strength to strength 14 wickets in the series he made an observation yesterday that he never felt that he really hit his straps in one day cricket but he certainly has here zampa Mm -hmm. who was on the outer last year is back in and, and had his best series for australia Lyons seems to have kind of established himself as the second spinner for the time being. Jai Richardson's a, an all-round asset. We've seen him in the field. We saw him with the bat and the decider. Obviously, his bowling's been... I mean, it might have tailed off a little bit from the Australian summer, but I'm sure he'll be in the squad. Berendorf, a pretty good start to his international career. Um, we're not even talking about Josh Hazelwood uh, or Mitchell Stark, for that matter, although I'm certain Stark will be in the squad. Hazelwood, who played in 2015 and 
was part of the team that, 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 that held up the trophy. He probably won't make the squad, I reckon. The, the chances are that he'll be uh, left to focus on um, his preparations for the Ashes, which is a bit stiff on Hazelwood. He's not done an awful lot wrong, an awful lot wrong in one-day cricket, but Kesara, Sarah, and, and they'll build their, their fast-bowling attack around um, Cummins, who's ever-dependable and increasingly a leader in this side, and, and Mitchell Stark, who... Um, who, yes, he's enigmatic, and yes, he has come off far from the best summer, but um, he'll be irresistible as far as picking him as the left armour with that option, the the way he can swing the, the ball, and he's still a big game player. We saw that in the 2015 World Cup. Well, just the way that he can get on a roll. You know, I was looking back through some of his 2015 World Cup stuff the other day because, you know, <laughs> of course I was. Um, what else were you doing? Yeah. <laughs> but, but the fact that, what was he averaging? 10, I think, runs per wicket yeah. in that World Cup. He was taking a I wicket. He took 24 wickets at 10 or something. 20, yeah. 22 wickets, um, and, and he took one every 17 balls. I mean, it's yeah. it's just absolutely bananas. And then, and he had that back when it was the Matador Barbecues Cup, the uh, the fifty over competition. I will remember these numbers. I think for the rest of my life, he played six games, took twenty four wickets, seventeen of them were clean bowled. Just, <laughs> just you know, he was at the absolute peak of his powers. He might not yeah. be there now, but if he can be even two thirds of the way there, he's pretty dangerous. Pat Cummins was just a joy to watch in this last one day series. He was relentless he was dangerous every time they called on him it seemed like he might be able to make something happen he was getting the ball to duck around off off indian pitches which isn't always the easiest thing to do he was right up there with with boomer and bhuvneshwar in terms of using the conditions to his advantage um and you know particularly in that fifth match that closing game every time he was needed he he produced he bowled an over that gave nothing away and then it just ratcheted up the pressure. You know, India had two run chases out of those three games they lost, and in both those run chases, there was so much about the pressure that the Australian bowlers put on as a unit. Cummins in that way, and Nathan Lyon, the other one, who missed the first two games, played in the three wins, and he went for went at four and over across those three matches, you know, and that includes a game where India made 350 and a game where they made 280 chasing. So in both of those chases, again, he was coming on in the middle overs, giving away three or four singles in an over, and they just couldn't get going against him. So it was outstanding work from him. Yeah, it's fun. it's it's been an interesting career arc with Nathan Lyon and the White Balls. Of course, he, he, he got himself into the spotlight based on what he did in domestic 2020 cricket. He was given an opportunity to play in the, in the White Balls team back in 2012, then jettisoned for about four years, maybe even five years he was out of calculations for the Australian One Day side. Got back in briefly against India in... It would have been 15-16, failed to land a punch there. Went to Sri Lanka in 2016 and didn't get much of an opportunity either. Now he's back again. Like they, they, But now, at last, it feels as though he's making the case to, to play more than he doesn't alongside Zampa. They turn the ball in opposite directions. Zampa's um, obviously now beating the outside edge as well as the inside edge. A big criticism of him was that he, he didn't turn his leg break, but I think he is now. Uh, and he also attacks the stumps line. We know the sort of... Um, the sort of uh, the sort of skills he has uh, with with his finger spin. So in England, a, a guy that's been to England many times as well with the Test side um, and, and other tours along over the years. I think that that that's a logical uh, partnership to to look after the spin duties when they're in England. And as we know, through the course of that tournament, early on it'll be early summer, sure. But a, as it wears on, there's only for a lot of the grounds two or three pitches they're going to be able to use 
in the World Cup due to the television broadcast. I need to use the ones that are, that are close to the middle. So by the time we get to the end of June and the first half of July, I expect, much like the Champions Trophy in 2017 and the Women's World Cup in 2017, that these pitches will dry out and you'll need two spinners. It won't be a case of uh, you know using one as they did in 2015 with Glenn Maxwell, and he wasn't even really a frontline spinner. He didn't bowl 10 overs in many games, if any game, really. Yeah, well, um, Watson they'll, they'll was there to, and was bowling quite a bit. That Watson, yeah. So Mitch they'll need Marsh. to invest in, in, that, in that spin department. So it's ticking over pretty well, Jeff. Uh, I mean, it, again, I, I, I'm, I'm, str- I'm struggling to believe that we're having this conversation. But yeah. with England having just tapered off ever so slightly and India having, of course, lost this series to Australia the first time they've lost a series. I think this is, they, they were 12 for 13 heading into this um, in terms of Series 1. It's a, it's a good time to get hot. Well, just a little note on Zampa. I thought it was telling that his his first ball um, last night, as it was when we're recording this, just after that series, yep. his first ball in the fifth game was a filthy drag down that got smacked into the crowd for six. Um, and in in his last over, when they felt they had to attack him, when Jadov was trying to get something going, they hit a six there as well. So the nine point four overs in between times, he went for thirty four runs. Um, and again, just that control through the middle, picked up three wickets along the way. Had a couple. Had Rohit Sharma dropped twice as well. The the ability just to slow up, you know, quite a powerful Indian batting lineup. That is so vital if you're if you're on slow wickets. And some of those grounds in England, as you say, can can end up being pretty slow and pretty hard to get going on, um, particularly once they've had a few matches played on. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Of course, as ever, brought to you by Kookaburra. Remember that every week during the summer, you can win Kookaburra prizes. Pads, bats, gloves, thigh pads. Every week, something is on offer. Just head to kookaburra.biz. That's kookaburra.biz and sign up to the team because, of course, if it ain't cooker, it ain't cricket, Jeff. A lot of uh, little kookaburra nuggets that you find as you're going through. As I said, I was trawling through some 2015 World Cup footage and I'd never realised before, but uh, A.B. de Villiers, when he made 162 off uh, 61 balls against the West Indies, he was batting with a kookaburra bat. I, I didn't realise. I, oh, really? I, I don't think he still does, but uh, but back in the day, uh, he was launching Jason Holder with slog sweeps over deep backward square leg while kneeling down out <laughs> Inside his off stump with uh, a kookaburra blade. That is uh, some of his some of his best work. Jeff, you got the surge. Dave, which one have you got? The blaze. I've got the blaze. And that blaze, I'm reliably informed via social media, was used to win you a premiership a couple of weekends ago. I, I must. Uh, it's indulgent, but please tell us about the mighty Dan O'Connell's victory in the <laughs> in the in the in the Melbourne Pub Cricket League. This, I, is, this is astonishing. I think it'd be too literal to say that my bat was used to win the premiership because uh, my <laughs> bat didn't have a whole lot to do with it. I actually ended up in the commentary booth um, for the final because I, I thought that was probably a more useful contribution I could make to the to the team. But yeah, the uh, the big day not out is the Yarra Pub Cricket League uh, sort of culmination of the year of the season where they have a knockout competition. They had sixteen pub teams playing um, lightning rounds, ten overs a side, bang bang bang. So to win, you've got to win four, four games in a row to make it through to the final, and then win uh, the the Do Triple C. Brought home its, th- its third flag. Odd, odd years. It's very a sort of Geelong Football Club style arrangement. That's uh, it's it's twenty thirteen, twenty fifteen, and then skipped one, and now twenty nineteen. So 
uh, I like to feel it was all the good luck that was brought by the blaze when, when I brought it into the setup and um, started making a couple of runs. Well, congratulations to you, of course, the blaze used by Glenn Maxwell, Rachel Haynes and Josh Hazelwood. There is the Serge Silvani, Peter Hanscom, Mitchell Stark, Sophie Molyneux uses that. The Kahuna, Usman Kawaja had a Kahuna as he was flaying the Indians over the last week or so. Elisa Healy and Tim Payne, or you can get the ghost, Marcus Harris, who's been, been in good nick for Victoria. Nathan Lyon or Nicole Bolton. Make sure you sign up to kookaburra.biz. Team Kookaburra, if it ain't cooker, it ain't cricket. Time to also give a shout-out to some new patron subscribers who've signed up oh, in yes. the last week or so, which is uh, lovely to see. A huge salutation to Grant Wise, who's, who was actually on as a subscriber already, but he's bumped up his contribution. He's enjoying the pod so much, so uh, top work there. I also like the name Grant Wise because it sounds like a government program, that you know, like Drink Wise or <laughs> Bike Wise or something. I don't know what it's warning you about. Is it about... Is it about grants? Is it about local commu- Yeah, I was going to say lo- local community grants. Yeah, yeah arts grants. It's the portal that um, it's the portal that determines where, who gets what. I, it's I, the machine. So, so this is what happens if you're nice to us and you subscribe. We make fun of your name. I can do that because my name's Jeff <laughs> Lemon. So there's always a comeback. Um, fire them back in my direction anytime you want. I, I used to enjoy reading the comments on your stories back in the day, which used to get a little bit racist as well. But anyway, yep. um, the Jeff Lemon was uh, was was uh, was you know I'm not even I'm sure you remember them better than I do, but but people did enjoy the fact that you, your surname is Lemon. Well, basically, there's, there's, there, are, there are only about three, maybe two, and, and people think they're very original where they go, oh, what a lemon, and you're like, hey. Or they go, oh, you sound a bit bitter, and you're like, hey. So, you know, that's, that's about it. I think there are those two. No one gets any more inventive than that. So thank you to Grant Wise for being a good supporter of the show. Amanda B, we don't have an Amanda A, but we do have Amanda B. I've always preferred anyway i think that's better you know why start at the top of the alphabet uh, andrew johnson has signed up ian mckay has signed up tom crowley thank you to you andrew tuttle this is wonderful work from andrew tuttle instead of coming mm-hmm. in and signing up for two dollars he signed up for four dollars 34 and that is of course a tribute to 434 being the score that australia made in a one-day international against south africa in johannesburg which they lost in 2006 i want to say well, yeah it was, it was early 2006 it was a long weekend because i remember i was following that game at ding dong nightclub until four in the morning on the dance floor it was like a sunday night before a monday mm. and then watching in the early days of being able to track these things on your phone and then, of course, they ended up making 438 South Africa because they did they hit a six on on 432. I think they hit a four. I think they hit a four when scores were level. Mark Boucher, right, I reckon, okay. hit a hit a boundary. Yeah, at the tie because I was listening to it on my Walkman. This will date it on on the AM band <laughs> on a Walkman while lying on a mattress in the backyard of a house party in North Carlton. At about four in the morning, um, staring. Yeah, up into it was the definitely sky. about four in the morning. Yep. It was probably. It was probably actually. I was. I was going as far to say, Jeff, is that it'd be this corresponding weekend. It just passed the Labor Day weekend. About mm-hmm. this time of year, they would have been in South Africa playing in those one days. But yes, four thirty-four. They call it the four thirty-eight game in South Africa, don't they? So we yeah. call it the four thirty-four game. And that was my favourite little bit of, um, of of local colour that I brought back from South Africa last year. Was you say, oh, the four thirty-four game, and they go, what do you mean? What's that? It's the four three eight game. Well, fair enough, they won. So um, good work from Andrew Tuttle there. If you want to bring any other number-related gags into your subscriptions, please do. Uh, ben Salter has also signed up. Big cheerio to Ben. He's a fantastic Thanks, ben. musician, Ben Salter. So go and look him up online. He's got uh, a power of work out there on the internet. Michael Fallon has signed up, and Donna has also signed up with an amazing pledge. So we're very, very lucky to 
have the support of Donna. Thank you uh, to everybody who's signed up. If you want, you can do that. We're up to 64 subscribers. We're trying to get to 100 Three. because that would be a great number. 64 is bloody good in in pretty short time. So we're really uh, wrapped that, that people are signing up to support the pod. And what you can do is go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the final word. And then you can sign up to make a little financial contribution per episode or you can set yourself a monthly maximum depending what your situation is and uh, show your support for the pod and get involved. And you can also send us an email at finalwordcricket at gmail.com if you want to get in touch or talk to us about potential subject matter or uh, other things and be part of the Final Word community. Yeah, thanks for all those contributions. Thanks for the reviews on iTunes and so forth as well. Um, it's, it's going to be a massive year for the pod. I know we're a couple of months into 2019 now, but um, we are lining up some live shows to respond to a few people on Twitter asking if we were going to replicate the, the show from Melbourne. We are um, throughout the course of the Ashes summer over here when Jeff joins me in the UK, so we'll be um, doing shows uh, which there'll be more information about closer to the day. Um, we'll also be doing um, a World Cup podcast. Jeff and I will um, be uh, coming to you every day of the World Cup. It's it's uh, it's an ambitious goal, but uh, we're being paid to do it, so we absolutely will. <laughs> the, uh, the World Cup podcast um, will be every night, wherever it is that Jeff and I are around the, this, this island nation, around Albion. Um, you will receive uh, about 20 minutes from us when you wake up in the morning to hear all about it. And then we'll continue doing the weekly show, which is going to be quite fun as well. At this stage, there could be an opportunity for some crowd participation in that. We're working on a couple of uh, a couple of ideas now. So, yeah, keep your eye on the pod through the course of 2019. And if you can, offer uh, a small amount by way of um, patron subscription. That, that makes it all much easier for us to, uh, to pull this together each week. Australia, New Zealand, the Rose Bowl and... Look, Adam, I just want to come out and say it. New Zealand women's team in one day is against Australia. Massive chokers. I don't like being mean about these things, but I was so frustrated watching them play this series. They've got such talent in that side. They've got such ability, and yet they haven't been able to win a one-day series against Australia in 20-odd years. They've got the ability to do it, and particularly in the first match of that series, they were absolutely locked on to win and to go 1-0 up and finally put a bit of pressure on Australia and they just gave it away. Yeah, and the same applies to global tournaments. The last two times uh, the New Zealand women who have come into those contests, um, I've backed them. I said they should go and win the whole thing and, and on both occasions they've failed to make it to the elimination rounds and, and bombed out in the group stage. And, and I know that breaks the heart of, of the veterans of this side like um, Susie Bates and Sophie Devine and Amy Satterthwaite and others who have been involved for such a long period of time and, and they ply their trade on the semi-professional circuit and they dominate. There's a reason why Susie Bates has been named the, the wisdom leading cricketer a couple of years ago and Sophie Devine has been absolutely dominant in the Women's Big Bash League. Um, Bates and Satterthwaite have both been captains of franchises in those competitions in England and Australia. Um, they pile up enormous amounts of runs and take so many wickets um, domestically and they do for their country as well but it just seems as though in, in the more high profile series and when there's more on the line um, there is uh, there is a handbrake there and, and, it, and it continues to prevent them taking the next step and with an ageing group they're not, they're not quite at the stage when they will start retiring but they're not far away from it you could argue that they've they've played their best cricket or at least they've been then they're not going to get any better so by the time we reach the next Women's World Cup in 2021 I know there's a Women's World T20 before then in 2020 but 
that they might be their last opportunities and, and they've got to turn around this year. Seemingly this, this mental block that prevents them playing well on the big stage. Yeah, mental block was exactly what it felt like watching that first match. They were working their way through the Australian batting, particularly, you know, Amelia Kerr, the young leg spinner, who's such an exciting player, picked up a couple of quick wickets in succession. They had Australia 6 for 154 and then 7 for 187 by the time Gardner was out. Now, Jess Jonathan was at the crease, who's a, a very capable batter and she's you know made 99 in a test match she bats up the order for the heat she's she's certainly not a tail ender but to be at the point of 7 for 187 and let Australia push back to 241 they got bowled out in the last over but Jonathan made 36 Wareham 10 shoot 12 they were each able to to put together a bit of a partnership and just keep pushing that score up and then even so New Zealand should have chased it Amy Satterthwaite was the centerpiece of that innings she made 92 and people were praising the innings but I still felt that there were so many points of that innings where she needed to accelerate a bit and couldn't and and didn't and wouldn't for whatever reason and kept playing too conservatively, let the required rate stay just that bit too high. And so when she was dismissed late in the piece, they couldn't get there. So they ended up at 236. They were five runs short. But I felt if the player who nearly made 100 had taken responsibility and been a bit more dynamic through the middle overs they wouldn't have needed to, to come down to the end like that and it wouldn't have needed to come down to the tail to try to make those runs as well. Let's talk about Jess Jonathan. Uh, Jeff wasn't part of Australia's side for the Women's World T20. Admittedly, she was coming back from injury, so she was on the back foot, but it seemed as though Sophie Molyneux had, had leapfrogged her. Um, Georgia Wareham was really important uh, in the World Cup final as well. And I don't know, I, I guess part of me wondered whether Jonathan's days as an Australian player might be numbered on that basis, but uh, wrong we were, or wrong I was in that case. I think uh, she wondered she... that a bit herself. I, yeah. I think, you know, she's sort of hinted at that, that she, it was a bit of a case of the Nathan Lyons where, she was such a good, consistent spin bowler, but wasn't necessarily the most eye-catching or dramatic player, and so found herself being squeezed out on a few occasions where they wanted to try a different balance or or get more exciting players into the side. Um, but you know, showed her value in this series, not just in game one with the bat, but particularly the five-wicket haul she picked up in the second game, where she, you know, New Zealand having come so close in game one, then just fell apart in game two, and that was. Pretty dispiriting. They were bowled out for 152, chasing 247, but it was Jonathan monstering them with uh, 5 for 27 of 8 overs, which is, you know, astonishing work in 50 over cricket. Perry again, Jeff. Um, we, we've, we've spoke about Elise quite a lot over the last three months. Again, it's hard uh, to avoid Women's it. World T20. Yeah, well, she was batting at number seven in the World T20. I know she was elevated once, but her position was seven. And, well, she never said that that annoyed her as such. She wasn't sort of, you know, making the case that she was disappointed about it because she's too classy for that. But how could it not? I mean, the idea that um, she was considered not a quick enough player to, to bat um, where she historically had been uh, and to respond the way she has in the Women's Big Bash League and now what she's done in this series, making her first limited overs 100. Um, it's it, She was named the... The, the Guardian's leading women cricketer last year. It was the inaugural time that poll had been taken. And that wasn't uh, an emphatic verdict. Indeed, uh, like one cricket, one cricket writer I know um, who voted in that poll said that she's not in the top five women's players in the world. This is someone who follows women's cricket very closely, runs a women's cricket blog. Um, it was, was adamant that, um, that, that Perry is really not much chop. And to think that um, 12 months later, that if there's 20 people polled this year, she'll receive number one from 20 people. That's, that's, uh, that's certain. 
Yeah, well, she made well over a thousand runs in the Australian season. You know, between her seven hundred and seventy-seven run Big Bash, and then uh, you know, coupled yeah. with the WNCL, the, the fifty-over domestic comp, and then the Australian internationals, the, she managed to get past that little. I don't know if it was a hoodoo. I don't know if it bothered her, but it was a statistical anomaly that she'd made twenty-four half centuries in forty innings, which is just. It's just obscene, you know, to be able to... Most players might make a 50-plus score in one-day cricket, I reckon every five to six innings would probably be an an elite-level uh, attainment. She was doing it better than one, once every second innings for a, a number of years there, um, but she hadn't been able to get to the 100. She'd been not out in the 90s three times. She'd been out in the 90s once, and she was very nearly out in the 90s in this innings in, in the second match of this series because she was on 97 when she pulled the ball to the rope uh, in the last couple of deliveries, and, and it spilled through the hands of the catcher and went for four. So she got to a hundred, but you know, she said she wasn't too bothered. But it was a little bit like uh, Glenn Maxwell, who would often get get out in the nineties or be left not out in the nineties in one day cricket. Just sort of hadn't hadn't necessarily had the time coming in at number four when she batted a bit more slowly. But this time, one hundred and seven off one hundred and ten balls, she'd taken her T twenty scoring rate a bit more into fifty over cricket and was able to hit that accelerator rather than ending up eighty not out at the end of that innings. Um, got past the hundred instead. Uh, Women's Ashes are next on the agenda for the Australian side. They won the Ashes in England in this corresponding series in 2015. They've got to be raging hot favourites. I know England did well to bounce back and and win the T20s against India, and they're on their way to Sri Lanka at the moment, but they didn't do particularly well in the 50-over internationals. They've got a fair bit to work out in their own 11, I think, so Australia might be going to England at a pretty good time. Uh, That series, of course, starts with the... One Day Internationals, the Test Match in Taunton, which I uh, can't wait to be down there for that. I love it down in Somerset. And then we have the, the three T20 Internationals to round it off. Um, so, uh, again, a, a huge year for cricket over here in the UK, not least the Women's Ashes. It's going to be it's going to be a brilliant thing to cover. Yeah, well, the One Day has sort of overlapped the end of the World Cup, so that's going to be a pretty hectic time. We'll be pinballing back from mm. one end of the country to the other. <clears throat> and then, luckily, it's, you know, after the World Cup final, we've got a few days to have a bit of a breather before we head down for the Test match. But that's... Two, two days to be me. precise. There, there are two days off. I've worked okay. out on the calendar. Well, that's you know, it's better than nothing, isn't it? <laughs> no, no. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to go to Taunton early just to kind of make it feel like a holiday or something like that. Right, just just to soak up the vibe, get used to the conditions, get your eye. Yeah. Um, that that test match centerpiece of the Ashes. That's that's the fascinating one for me because it's you know we, we've talked about this quite a bit, but the the unfairness really of being asked to play a test match when you don't get to play any other long form cricket. You you. You're not being set up to show your skills at their best in in that arena because you know what sort of opportunity do you have to prepare for that? I suppose they'll. I'm guessing that little gap between the one days and the test there'll probably be some sort of um, attempted warm up in that period. Yeah, there certainly have been the last couple of times. They'll. I imagine they'll play the England Academy. Um, that's been the, the traditional warm up for the Test match show. I mean, you know, women's test cricket is, is going to be a, a, a discussion point, I think, going forward. Mm. Um, administrators are split on the topic. I mean, well, I wouldn't say split. The vast bulk of them don't think there's really a place for women's test cricket, but there's a procedural fairness element to this, which we've talked about before on this pod, Jeff, and um, and the players, whenever they're asked, they, they, all, they all fancy the idea of 
multi-day women's multi-day uh, you know red ball cricket being part of the offering at domestic level and mm. I don't know my, 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 my personal thoughts are that surely women's cricket's reaching a degree of maturation in, in, with its professionalism that we can find a way to have a three-day competition alongside the WNCL I mean the WNCL at the moment um, is played over five rounds in a final why, why couldn't we um, look at expanding the way the WNCL is played so that there is a, an element of three-day cricket across that season as well and make it multi-format in the same way that the women's Ashes are multi-format and take the leadership there. I mean, if you played them over, most of the women's teams are verging on professional now. If you played them on three days, like that is to say Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 100 overs a day, something like that, you would I think that'd be just about the right balance, and using long weekends and other devices to achieve that, and then and then it, that, that might you know uh, inspire England to do something similar. I know they're going through their own restructure at the moment. It's not entirely clear where they'll land on their county championship um, after the the, the, the Kia Super League ends and the hundred starts next year. But I don't know. I think this is the time for some big sort of blue sky thinking about women's cricket, and if they're going to continue playing Test matches from time to time, um, and if we agree that there is an element of fairness with women having the opportunity to play multi-day cricket and playing test cricket. Someone like Susie Bates, who I referenced before, has never played a test match, and she desperately would love the chance mm. to play a test match for New Zealand, and that'll only happen if, there, if there's domestic cricket as well. So, uh, yeah, it, it's a conversation which I think we should continue having. Yeah, or that, you know, maybe it, it does need to be top-down in this case, where, from my perspective, every women's international series should be a multi-format one. If, if we're going to do the multi-format Ashes, you know, T20s, ODIs, tests, then when England plays India, it should be the same. You know, when Australia plays New Zealand, it should be the same. Instead of tucking a Rose Bowl series in within the space of a week with three one-dayers somewhere, you know, at the start and the end of the season, have one series against New Zealand that's a proper series through the middle of the home summer, you know, do it every summer if you want. Have that tradition of playing New Zealand regularly. That's great. You know, do it like the Bledisloe Cup. Have it as a as a regular grudge match. But at least that way you'd get, you know, one guaranteed test per season and then, you know, you'd have an Ashes every other couple of years. You would have might have the same when you play India. It might be more difficult to justify against some of the, the teams that would struggle in that format. But at least the stronger teams should be playing each other to... You know, and and to give the other side something to aim for, you know, something to build their way up to, rather than something to be kept out of. Yeah, and the counter view is that money is scarce and resources have to be allocated where they're where they're most useful and and, and they're most useful women's cricket and white ball cricket. And and I and I'm mindful of that and appreciative of, of that counter view. But um, but to say to a woman that well, okay, look at look at it from an ICC perspective. There was a survey this week reiterating that Test cricket's the most um, the most loved and cherished of the three forms mm. at, at international level in that big survey they do each year. Yep. Um, at, uh, uh, MCC, sorry, not the ICC. And, I mean, that, that says something to me. And, and if we're saying that um, test cricket is a pinnacle of our sport, but, oh, well, we only allow one gender to essentially play it except for a bespoke women's test match in the Ashes once every two mm. years, then I'm not sure that's the right message to be sending. You know, we, we've put man on the moon several times. I mean, surely we can find a way to... <laughs> Um, to uh, to get women playing uh, long form cricket um, without it having to be um, you know drawing down away from um, what they already have in the way of resources for white ball cricket. I know it's scarce, but you know the women's game is growing rapidly. And I, and I you know I, again I look back at the, what the players say. 
we want to play more. Let's give them a chance to play more and let's let's bring it into the WNCL and, and hopefully the county championship in England when they get their act together over the next couple of years, they can, they can have an element of this as well. Let's finish up with a couple of reader questions and comments that have been emailed in. First of all, just a cheerio to Vernon Noronha who's been corresponding with us and, and Cressida Evans who's listening in from Brazil um, claiming to be our only fan in Brazil. I think that's probably pretty accurate but it's nice to know we've got one. Uh, this is a question for you, Adam, from David Chiampa, who was responding to your remark that James Pattinson is the best bowler in the world on his day. And David says this is based on what? He hasn't played Test cricket in three years. Um, he did happen to take a five-wicket hole for not many today coming back for Victoria from his latest injury setback. So it's it's an apt time. Well, yeah, it is a good time to answer that question. He had five for 13 at one stage in the second innings against New South Wales. And to David, I'd simply say, um, watch the... Watch the highlights and clips of that innings, and you get a you get a timely reminder of the fact that Pattinson combines pace with swing like no other bowler in Australia. I mean, I know Stark has that ability to, to do it as well on his day, but um, as a southpaw. But in terms of your your right arm over the wicket bowling to what are still a majority of right-handed batsmen in Test cricket, being able to tail it away and, and find the outside edge at over 150 clicks, uh, the way that he charges in I suppose uh, what I'd add is that cricket isn't sort of played on spreadsheets really I mean I know sometimes we're quite reductive with numbers but it, it's it's the beauty of James Pattinson is in the watching and when he's on song I had the great pleasure of watching him play a couple of games for Nottinghamshire in the 2017 county championship season and yeah that that was just rapid um, swing bowling uh, and someone that does that is a generational talent and it's always been about fitness with him uh, and now that this back surgery this sort of surgery he was sent off to New Zealand to have to replicate what Shane Bond had when he was bowling for New Zealand uh, it, now that it seems to have worked I wouldn't be surprised at all if they try and find a way to integrate him into the national setup sooner rather than later ahead of the Ashes. And if they do, that'd be incredibly exciting. Well, if he can keep him keep his body together, that would be incredibly exciting as well. Um, absolute yeah. day of carnage that he was involved in in the Sheffield Shield. <laughs> What's up with that? I know there was some high scoring in the previous round. Will Bukowski made 100 in the second dig, one of many uh, Victorians to cash in. Around the country, especially in that South Australia-Queensland game where I think all four innings were out for 150, all out for 150, a couple of double-digit um, innings there from, I think, South Australia might have been out for 100 both times around or thereabouts. Um, it, it, it's not that encouraging. I saw Marnus Labuschagne, though, did get to 30 in the first inning, so I suppose um, at least he, he reached the all-important 30 figure. An email in as well from Johnny Cleary, who said he's interested to discuss how good Warner and Smith will be when they come back, and just, you know, this is relevant to our conversation earlier. And he's right in saying that everything he's read seems to assume they'll pick up where they left off, but that can't be a given surely after what they've been through, which is you know, a very relevant point. It's a great unknown, isn't it? I think with Smith, what we know about Smith's personality and what we've seen in the way of you know, social media clips and whatnot is that he's been batting for 12 months anyway. Now, it's not match practice and well, he has played a lot of T20 cricket around the world, but um, yeah, I, I sort of feel as though logic points towards these two guys being so hungry to make amends for what's happened in their careers and this, uh, you know, layoff they've had due to their stupidity in Cape Town. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of lean on the side of I think they'll they'll tear it up, but yeah, how do you know? Yeah, I'm a little more wary about it because I just think that no matter how much training you do and playing at other levels, that slight difference that's still a huge difference between the top, top level and the rest, you know, but against playing the very best bowlers in the world, you know, facing Jasper Boomer, if it's a bit 
overcast and a bit dim light and the ball's doing a bit, you know, suddenly it's just a different level. So mm. whether whether they'll be able to hit the kind of heights that they've been at and live up to their own standards is the big one. And I think maybe Warner's just temperamentally a bit more inclined to be able to do that. He might just come in and out of sheer stubbornness, you know, he's made a career out of doing things he's not supposed to be able to do um, and he's not supposed to be qualified to do. And that's that's another reason why I think it might be a good move to, to ease Smith back in a bit um, through the Australia A team and have him focus on red ball so that it's a bit more focused in terms of what he's trying to do. And he's not having to deal with the confusion of swapping formats and switching gears, which he was struggling with even when he was playing all the time. Uh, Jeff, in closing, we've been doing a bit of a popuri segment uh, at the end of the podcast in the last few weeks. That seems to be working pretty well. Bangladesh have really fallen off a cliff in the last 18 months or so, and um, New Zealand have, have, have taken full advantage. Ross Taylor made 200 in 212 balls in the third test. Latham made a double hundred the previous week. Cain Williamson, double hundred as well. Nichols has made a couple of centuries along the way. They're, they're just piling up enormous scores. And I don't know, I think personally, Australia has uh, has to take some responsibility for that, for not hosting Bangladesh last year. So, I mean, they've just not been given uh, adequate opportunity to play in this country, in this part of the world. So credit to New Zealand for hosting them. But I think that it's a reminder that Australia has a responsibility to um, to live up to what it's obligated to do in, as a full test-playing nation, as it were, and and, uh, and have Bangladesh over at some stage in the next, you know, 20 years. What I will say is that that series did give us some terrific, uh, quote-unquote, online content from the fake Kane Williamson Twitter account. It's the only good fake Ooh. account since fake Nathan Horitz um, <laughs> was revealed to be Dan Liebke a few years ago. But I don't know who's behind the fake Kane Williamson one, but it's literally the only funny parody account on, online, I think. But So at one point, put up a photo of that incredibly green wicket saying, please, someone help us. The pitch has been stolen. An unprecedented crime in the game of cricket. We will not let this go unpunished. Oh, wait, I found it. Sorry, everyone. And then later on, as Kane Williamson injures his shoulder and gets taken off, this account is tweeting, I don't want a scan on my shoulder. Leave me alone. Let me back on. Let me back on. No, don't let Tim be captain. Unlock this ambulance door right now. How dare you? (laughs) Because he wouldn't go off. He'd bug at his shoulder and he was just refusing to go. And it's like, mate, don't break yourself before the World Cup. You know, one of the best players in your country's history, well, probably one of the top three and um not the time to you know rip out your acl diving to save a boundary when you've already done your shouldering yeah new zealand worth keeping an eye on them this year they're they're just building i know it's not one day cricket but they they didn't embarrass themselves against india and they're doing really well at the moment and players who might not get another opportunity like ross taylor i don't know smoky for the world cup i think um, especially if uh, Bolton see how they can get the ball moving around early in the tournament, picking up a couple of wins. Um, I also saw yesterday, Jeff, the MCC Cricket Committee made a, uh, made their annual statement, which included a recommendation. Well, they're not really recommendations. They're more sort of like, um, you know, points to discuss and consider. Um, uh, front foot no balls in test cricket being followed by a free hit, um, which I think people collectively spewed when they saw that. But, I mean... Uh, yeah, what can you say? That that seems like it's the sort of thing that um, is being taken straight from white ball cricket. I, I wish it weren't, but it uh, seemed, you can see what's going to happen it here. It seemed really weird at first that you, they were like, the MCC is recommending this, and then you realised that Shane Warne was on that committee and suddenly it yeah. made sense. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right, especially when front foot no balls aren't being adjudicated properly anyway in well, the ICC. The they're not being they, called. They said last year... 
So the well, only free hit's going to be after a wicket falls and then they check the no ball and then there's a free hit. <laughs> like, Next ball, uh, ex- exactly right. Uh, it's going to end up being precisely what you say there where it'll only be a free hit the ball after you've got out. And, and we know they're not calling them and we know the ICC had a solution, a fantastic trial in 2016 in England in one day as between England and Pakistan. And as we talked about on the podcast, probably before Christmas, uh, they bottled it and said it was too much money. I'm not still not sure how it can be too much money when these cameras are already put in place and the fourth umpire would have simply had to have toggled away all day long on the front line. Maybe the fourth umpire just didn't want to do that. That's to my toggle away all day long. There. The fourth umpire is busy yeah, tweeting. Right. The fourth umpire yeah, runs right. the fake Kane Williamson Twitter account. He's <laughs> otherwise engaged, coming up with hilarious. We also saw the, a recommendation about standardising the balls that might be used for test cricket, which is, um, which I mean, again, like to, to achieve what purpose? I, I think that one of the great things about test cricket is the volatility from nation to nation, whether that's the pitch or the balls used or whatever the other um, local um, uh, local elements to it. You know, this this doesn't seem to pass muster for me. It, it feels as though it's a it, it's something that has got got into fashion of late that one ball is better than the other and we must standardise it accordingly. We haven't had this... Comp- no, I just... I don't want to borrow this. Keep it as it is. Leave things alone. Have a have a day grand final. Stop trying to move things. It's it's a it's a tricky subject to get into on a podcast sponsored by Kookaburra as to whether... Uh... Frank and Free, it could very well end up being that Kookaburra was the, was the ball standalone. And what about pink ball test cricket where they've put far more R&D into the pink kookaburra which is the the market leader according to the players who were asked about it I've asked some players about it last year and they all say the pink kookaburra is better so what we in that scenario we'd use the Dukes for all test matches apart from pink ball tests apart where you bring out the night. kookaburra it, like, yeah I it's just, just it's, you know, it just seems, it, it seems risky in that you know basically if you create a monopoly then you potentially stifle development and, and improvement because if you know if one providers doing every test ball worldwide you know the, the reason you've got this um, tension and debate between different places is that you know different balls behave in different ways and and uh, there are different manufacturers trying different things that's very adam smith of you jeff didn't expect you to come, that to come out of your mouth <laughs> market forces jeff lemon here we are cricket writer slash economist especially when i had you pegged as more pegged on the other side on a more command and control kind of character god we've really deteriorated here haven't we jeff yeah, we have. i think it's probably time we wrap up the podcast but thank you if you've got this far thank you so much for listening thank you to to kookaburra for looking after us if it ain't cooker it ain't cricket thank you to our patron subscribers who've um, been ever so loyal in, in signing up and making a contribution thanks to those who've subscribed on itunes and left a, a rating or a recommendation or whatever it is you do on there that's all very helpful too and Thanks for Jeff uh, to, for making time late at night, and uh, and uh, and hopefully we can um, jump on board next week and release one of the interviews we have in the can, Jeff. I think that's the plan, isn't what, it? Okay, what are we doing next week? We're, well, it's the end of the Shield season. Uh, we've got a we'll have some Pakistan ODI stuff, so we'll be wrapping up things there, and then I think the week after that we're going to release the Will Anderson interview that we've done, which is a, a really fascinating chat. And uh, also thanks to everyone who got in touch about the Earth Boy interview last week. A lot of people really enjoyed that and that's uh, one of my very favorite episodes we've done so far i think just that that conversation um i loved the ability we had to to go free range and end up wherever it was that we ended up so if you didn't get a chance to listen um, pop back to the previous episode in the queue and have a listen and if you want to check out the patron page it's patron.com slash the final word and if you want to send us an email you can send us an email at final word cricket at gmail.com and grab us on twitter 
Jeff Lemon Sport for him and Collins Adam for me. This has been the final word. Thanks again for your company. We'll talk to you next week. Protected by the way ain't fenced in if my future questions my current senses. That'd be the same we've been doing for centuries. Sorry if I ran out to empty wrote this so you know what I meant here. I had to get